Well, what a day, boys and girls. Hopefully, we will have a bit of rationality on the anarchist world this week. Just like the previous program, very rag- rational, logical people. And that's why we get nowhere here. That's it. Rational, logical people are losers in 2018 Australia. But if you're emotional, if you believe, if you create your own news, you're the one. So, Wednesday Action Group is not in action today. They're having a day off. But they will be in action tomorrow. You may not know this. It's Liberal Party having a little bit of a the State Liberal Party, a little bit of a meeting on the weekend. So we will be we will be going to the Liberal Party headquarters next Wednesday. That's the Wednesday Action Group at 11.30am. That's 104 Exhibition Street. We're quite concerned because they're thinking of selling Liberal Party headquarters. They've got a few financial problems. I think one of their uh, previous uh, uh, apparatchiks in jail for fraud or something regarding the Liberal Party, but that's the way it goes, so they may have to sell 104 Exhibition Street, but they'll be discussing it at the conference. I'm sure there will be some very nice people there to help them. Also, we're having the Institute of Private Affairs. We don't call them public because they're not public. The Institute of Private Affairs month. For one month, every Wednesday, we'll be outside their headquarters. Because last time we were there at 410 Collins Street, they sent the police to monster us. So it's time we taught them a lesson. Hang in. The satellites arrive. The cow's been sucked up. I'm next. The producer's next. The radio station's next. We're all about to arrive at the Community Radio Network. Evil minds at plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are, the Anarchist Woolless Week on Anzac Day 2018 which will be the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Now, if you're wondering what anarchy is all about, it's not what's happening around the country today. An anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power that's direct democracy. It's a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. So as I said before, you want to kill people, behead people, you know, uh, bomb people, do all those types of things, well, this isn't, this isn't the program for you, OK? Now, obviously, as the program's fallen on Anzac Day, we'll try to bring a little bit of uh, reality to the debate because we need to understand the past. Well, we need to know the past, not understand, but we need to know the past 
to understand what's going on today and hopefully change the future. And Anzac Day is one of those days that's been hijacked. That's right, hijacked. A day that should commemorate those who have died and have been injured and have participated in war in the name of uh, this country since the Boxer Rebellion and the Boer War has slowly but surely been transformed into a militaristic, nationalistic day. It's been a slow transformation, but it's almost complete. And what we've seen is the rise of both nationalism, but more importantly, militarism in this country. And that is linked to the hijacking of what should be a sacred day. Now, some of you may be a little bit concerned about what I'm going to say today, but I think it's important that we understand where all this is coming from because it does have profound ramifications for us in a world where more and more effort is being used by our principal ally, the United States of America, to create a fortress, a ring around the expanding Chinese Communist Party empire. And at some stage, we will be asked to, we've already been asked to, because to participate in this. And if you think we are somehow immune to what's happening, the rapidly cooling relationship between the Australian government and the Chinese government is to a large degree related to Australia's decisions to act as some type of forward scout, using a military analogy, the United States government, by sending warships through contested waters and by making a fuss about a non-existent Chinese base in Vanuatu. But again, it's part of the propaganda. It's part of the propaganda um, that we see because we are covered in propaganda every day. So I'd like to go back initially to World War One, ANZAC, A N. Z-A-C, Anzac, Z-A-C, Australian New Zealand Army Corps, Anzac, and what it was, what was World War One was about initially, and then look at World War Two, look at all the little wars that Australia's, all the little military adventurism Australia's been involved in, then come come to what's actually happening today, because we've got to understand. The military apparatus in this country has been used over and over again 
to promote conservative, imperialistic viewpoints around the globe. Now, World War One was essentially, essentially, a trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet. That's all it was. It was a trade war between Germany and its allies and Britain and its allies, fought by workers at either end of of a bayonet. And for the first time since the American Civil War, when we saw what modern armaments could do in terms of the mass slaughter during that period, we saw men pitted against machinery, against tanks, against planes, against chemical attacks. And when World War I was declared in August 1914, almost every Australian joined the war hysteria. When the Prime Minister said that Britain was at war, therefore Australia was at war, and we would support the British Empire, that's right, the British Empire, to the last man and the last shilling. You like that? To the last man and the last shilling. And it was very hard to find any resistance to what everybody thought would be some glorious little war fought in Europe which would be over in a few months. If you look at the records of the period and go through the newspapers of the period, you will see the hysteria that was whipped up in terms of people supporting the empire because we were part of the British Empire. We were part of that empire. Now, there was one organisation during this hysteria when war was declared in August 1914, which put up its hand and said, we oppose the war. We oppose the war. This is a trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet. We oppose this war. And when you listen to the Anzac Day speeches, that it continue, continue to highlight the sacrifices made during World War I and sacrifices were made by the Australian people. And during this program, I will go through those sacrifices because it's important we understand that past and we understand who the real heroes were, who were the men and women who saved tens of thousands of Australians from being slaughtered on the European killing fields. We need to remember that moment, those moments. We need to turn the spotlight on that history. So the industrial workers of the world put up their hands and they said, we oppose the war. So who were the industrial workers of the world? The industrial workers of the world were an offshoot 
of a militant labor organization formed in the United States of America at the beginning of the 20th century who used direct action to promote the workers' cause, who wanted to create one big union, who organised in terms of workplace, not in terms of a particular person's trade, as we do in the British Empire, but in terms of workplace. And the first branch of the industrial workers of the world was formed in the in Adelaide in 1908. And in 1912, 1912, 12 people in Sydney formed the Sydney branch of the industrial workers of the world, which had a profound impact on the war effort in this country, a profound impact that has been written out of this country's historical record. Because as you know, we as Australians are very good when it comes to historical amnesia and creating a fake historical account to suit current militarist leanings. So, this small band of men and a few women, less than 40 people in the whole of Australia, formed the backbone of a movement which within a few years rocked this country to its very foundations and more importantly saved the lives of countless men and the effect their deaths and injuries would have on their families. In Australia, there were fewer than 5 million, around 5 million people in the Australian population. And when war was declared, recruitment centres were established across the country. And over 400,000 Australian men and boys volunteered volunteered to join the war effort, to become cannon fodder, to be slaughtered on the European killing fields, not for democracy or freedom or the defence of this country, but for the glory of God, King and country. Cannon fodder. And anybody who reads or views or listens to the accounts of that war will realise how men and women were treated as disposable garbage by those who exercised authority during that period. And when we hear all these politicians and business leaders and corporate leaders and, you know, celebrities with their hands on their hearts talking about how the soldiers in World War I, you know, won us the freedoms that we enjoy today. Well, it makes fake news look like a storm in a teacup. World War I was a dirty little trade war fought by workers at either end of a a bayonet for the glory of God, 
king and country. It was nothing else. The Russians realised this, and the Russian Revolution occurred in November 1917 as a direct consequence of the number of people who were dying on the European killing fields for nothing. Nothing. Except to glorify and satisfy the war machine. It was fascinating when war was declared, money was raised by the government. That's right. Ten million pounds was raised from the people of Australia. And the way they were sucked in, they was told, you will get a higher interest return on your loan to the government and you don't need to do anything. Just give us your money so we can conduct the war effort. On the ground, once the casualties piled up and people began to realise that this dirty little war was going to drag on for eternity, resistance to the war effort increased across Australia. An unlikely coalition of of the industrial workers of the world, the women's movement, the trade union movement, and the Catholic Church led by Melbourne's Archbishop Mannix began to coalesce into a broad anti-conscription movement. Because in 1915, the government sent out letters to every able-bodied man who had not volunteered for the raw effort, asking them why they hadn't volunteered. And finding that the stream of volunteers had dried to a trickle, the flood had become a trickle, and seeing that both New Zealand and Great Britain had introduced conscription to enhance their military forces on the European killing fields, the Australian government, the Australian Labor government under Prime Minister Billy Hughes embarked on a campaign to introduce conscription in this country. And that was a widespread campaign which was conducted under the War Precautions Act which made it illegal for people to prejudice the, the uh, enlistment, enlistment in this country. So you couldn't even sing an anti-conscription song without being jailed in this country. The Labor movement was split 70-30. in favour of conscription, 70% against conscription. Billy Hughes, faced with the prospect of a general strike to kill his conscription endeavours, got Cabinet to hold a plebiscite. That's right, we've been holding plebiscites for a long time, not just for marriage equality. To hold a plebiscite in November, I think it was November 1916, to see if the Australian people 
wanted to introduce conscription in this country. And the anti-conscription campaign, which was spearheaded by the industrial workers of the world, which had grown into a large organisation by this time, which supported by a growing women's movement, who didn't want their sons sacrificed for the glory of God, king and country on the European killing fields, grew and grew and grew and grew in this country. And when the plebiscite was held and many of the people who fought against conscription were people who had returned, volunteers who'd returned from Gallipoli, injured, who'd returned to this country to highlight what this dirty little war was about. And the Australian people in late 1916 said no. N-O. There will be no conscription in this country. You will not forcefully send people to be sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. The Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, concerned that he was going to be turfed out of office by his own cabinet, walked across the chamber with one third of the cabinet and one third of the Labor Party joined the conservative opposition and became Prime Minister under the tutelage of the Nationalist Party. And they continued to agitate, continued to agitate to destroy the anti-conscription movement. This was a huge movement, huge movement, the Women's Peace Army, which is, was located in the old in the RMIT um, hall, was able to mobilise over a hundred thousand people in a peace march, in an anti-conscription march, three days before the conscription referendum in November 1916. Over a quarter of Melbourne's population, almost a quarter, marched on that day. So the country was split asunder. People began to realise this was was an adventure. It wasn't an adventure. It was a massacre. And they realised that it meant nothing to the people of this country. Why should they support Britain's imperial ambitions against Germany's imperial ambitions? ambitions. Legislation was introduced which outlawed industrial workers of the world. Their members were jailed. Many appeared in court on trumped up charges and received five to 15 years sentences in jail. Their newspaper direct action was closed down. Membership of the industrial workers of the world meant a automatic six-month prison sentence and many men and women across this country were imprisoned. And let's not forget, the Industrial Workers of the World was the only labour organisation in this country that was anti-racist, anti-nationalist. And if you look at their propaganda and the literature they, they put out, it was put out in multiple languages, including Chinese. It was an anti-racist, anti-nationalist, 
anti-militarist workers' organisation which was outlawed and its members were jailed for up to six months. Even Monty Miller, a veteran of the Eureka Rebellion, at 85, was jailed for six months in Western Australia for his membership of the Industrial Workers of the World. So although the organisation had been crushed in a sea of propaganda, the anti-conscription movement was not crushed. And irrespective of what Billy Hughes and his people did to introduce conscription and browbeat people into sending Australian men to be slaughtered on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country, they failed. And in the conscription referendum in December 1917, they failed by a wider margin to introduce conscription into this country. So during between 1914 and 1918, this was a divided country. Large sections of the labour movement went on strike in 1917 because of war profiteering, increasing uh, expenses, increasing inflation. Because there were many Australians who were making a quid out of the war who profiteered from the war. And Tom Barker, a leading militant in Industrial Workers of the World, Sydney local, was jailed for 12 months for having a cartoon or a caricature of an Australian soldier strapped to a cross with the carnage behind him of the European killing fields with a fat industrialist investor at the bottom of the crucified soldier with a skull in his hand collecting the blood which was dripping from this soldier saying hip hip hooray for war profits. Sid Nichols, a young cartoonist who drew that picture became the creator of one of Australia's most important and significant cartoon characters in later life, Ginger Meggs. But at that period in time, Tom Barker spent 12 months in prison because he was the editor of Direct Action, which published that cartoon. And if you want to have a look at that cartoon, I've written a a few thousand words on World War I, which you can access by going to anarchistmedia.org or to my Facebook page, page Toscano for the public because it's important to tell the truth as we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission it is important to tell the truth because if you don't tell the truth people manipulate situations to suit current political and economic agendas and that's what we are seeing today so we are talking about World War One. Not because I don't honour those who died during that war, and I do, and I pity them, and I pity their families because of the lies that they were told, of how they were sacrificed by the state, by business, by the corporate sector 
for their interests, not the interests of the Australian people. And good luck to the Australian people who during World War I said enough is enough and defeated two conscription plebiscites. Billy Hughes remained Prime Minister till the end of the war. But he never was able to introduce conscription because he was concerned that if he went against the plebiscite, this country would be paralysed by a general strike. So what happened to the 400,000 men who volunteered? What happened to these men? 62,000 died on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. 45,000 on the Western Front. 8,000 in one day. It could only be described as a slaughter and a massacre. Of those that returned, over 60,000 died within a decade of returning home. Of the half, of the two-thirds that remain, that's 120,000 died as a direct consequence of the war of, a, of an enlistment of around 400,000 volunteers within a decade. Of those that returned, of the 280,000 that returned alive, many returned with post-traumatic stress disorder, which was called shell shock in those days, to which there was no treatment for. And those that returned were honoured, honoured by being given worthless parcels of land to grow food on in the countryside, which soldier settlements, which most of them failed within a few years because the land was barren and didn't have enough water. That's how they were They were rewarded. Mr Whitaker was shot dead, a World War I veteran, shot dead by the police on the Melbourne jetty for having the audacity to strike And think of the trauma to the families of those who returned, who were destroyed by their war experiences, by their physical injuries, by their psychological scars. And think of the trauma that occurred to all those families who lost so many loved ones, so many brothers, so many husbands, so many uncles on the European killing fields for nothing. And a hundred years later, for people to claim that these men died for our freedom, for the liberties we enjoy today, to protect this country, are some of the biggest, unforgivable lies that I and you have ever faced. Unforgivable. And what's even more unforgivable is the fact that those people, those men and women who fought to prevent another 120,000 young Australians dying on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country, have been airbrushed out of history. They have been airbrushed out of this country's history. In every town, in every 
suburb, there is a monument to the Anzacs. Their names are written down on that monument. But where are the monuments to industrial workers of the world? Where are the monuments to the Women's Peace Army? Where are the monuments or even a few words written about these men and women who are jailed, had their assets removed, who are ostracised, marginalised, penalised for having the audacity to stare the government of the day in the face and prevent them from introducing conscription in this country. They are the real heroes and heroines because they prevented the death of unnecessary deaths of so many Australians. And for a hundred years later, for them to have been forgotten, to have been airbrushed out of history, is a tragedy. It seems to be the way that we as a people deal with unpalatable truths, whether it's the frontier wars and how this nation was created, whether it's the lies which swirl around and which are propagated regarding World War I, whether it's the lies regarding the significant role the trade union movement has played in improving the lives of so many people in this country. It seems as if we live in two different worlds. There are those who exercise power and acquire wealth and there's everybody else who's goaded, goaded into activity by a fourth of state that is bereft, bereft of any responsibility for the situation they have created. So what's that got to do with me, you say, in 2018, Joe? That was a nice, fascinating history lesson. I'm happy to read what you've written or other people have written or said about this particular point in time. I'm happy to do that. But what's it got to do with me in 2018? Haven't things changed? Well, have they? Have they really changed? Now, I'm not one to say that I blame an individual, soldier or sailor or air person, for their involvement in Vietnam or the Korean War or the Iraq debacle or the Syrian carnage or, you know, the Afghanistan, you know, uh, failures. I don't blame individuals. They're volunteers. So are the soldiers in World War I. I don't blame them. But I do blame successive governments in this country, especially conservative and reactionary governments, which have beaten, beaten the war drum, beaten the military drum, beaten the nationalist drum, to empower themselves to rule over us, to pull the wool over our eyes as a people, to make us think, to make us think that our involvement in these wars, whether it was the Malaya emergency, Vietnam, Korea, Syria, Iraq, even the Boer War, that involvement in this war had anything to do with the protection of this country, has anything to do with protecting our way of life, has anything to do 
with promoting us as a people. Of course it hasn't. It's about supporting the myopic, militarist adventurism. Their Pavlov dog response to the United States of Americans' military interests and economic interests around the globe. That's what it's all about. That's what's so sad about 2018. That's why it's so sad to see so many people believing the lies that have been peddled about the nature of Anzac Day and what it really means for this country. Because militarism is on the rise. Whether it's the formation of a military Industry that produces things like tanks and bullets. I mean, we like to position ourselves, you know, as another big producer of arms, an arms dealer, an arms manufacturer. We see a buck to be made in producing arms for the world. And we're already seeing contracts being given with tons of government money behind them to promote the arms industry in this country, the arm, the arms manufacturing, the armaments industry in this country. But more than that, it's about preparing you and me and our children for a war. A war which is basically economic, but will be tarted up as a war for freedom, the Australian way of life. The only war that Australians have been involved in that can be justified in military terms, in terms of protecting our turf, is World War II. And even then, as a country, we were more interested in the beginning of World War II in sending troops to Europe to bolster the British presence in Europe than in protecting our own flank. And when the Imperial Japanese forces swept through Malaya and captured Singapore, we began to understand, the, the Labor Prime Minister at that time, Mr Curtin, understood that things had changed. And there is one moment in Australian history that can be considered worthwhile commemorating in terms of protecting freedoms in this country, it's that battle against the imperial Japanese forces. A fascist dictatorship like the Nazi regime, a fascist dictatorship which used the arbitrary exercise of state power to enslave people for its own ideological and economic ends. And when we were faced with an invasion where Darwin was bombed and over 250 Australian servicemen and women and countless civilians were killed, people down south were told nothing. Just like they were told nothing about the toll in Vietnam. Nothing. Nothing. It had to be squeezed out of them. So who defended us? as a people, as a nation, as the Japanese imperial forces swept across the Pacific into New Guinea, down the Kokoda Trail. The Chocos. Chocos. Have heard of that term? Chocos. And who we should, we, should we be celebrating today? 
we should be celebrating the Chocos. They were army reservists, 18, 19 and 20 year olds, who were sent to fill the gap in New Guinea to stop the Japanese advance. While the troops, Australian troops, a number of divisions were brought back to bolster that defence. Young men, 18, 19, 20, and they were called chocos because they were, it was considered by the more hardened troops that they would melt in the sun, a derogatory term and also a term of endearment, the chocos. And it was the chocos with the assistance of the New Guinea people and the Papuan people, the Fuzzy Wuzzies, with their assistance, and they paid a huge price for assisting the Australians against the Japanese. And like the Timorese paid a huge price for assisting the Australians against the Imperial Japanese forces, a fascist regime, a fascist regime. And it was the Chocos who halted that advance and helped to prevent an invasion of this country by the Imperial Japanese forces, a fascist dictatorship. So they did protect our freedoms. They died for our freedoms. But on Anzac Day, it's all about the unnecessary sacrifice on World War I. And to make matters worse, what happens to these returned servicemen and women? The same experiences the World War I veterans had when they came back and were given useless pieces of land happens to them. When they say they've got a post-traumatic stress disorder and can't cope, and we see this in returned servicemen and women who make a an unacceptable number of the homeless in this country who can't seem to find employment, who have difficulty in interpersonal relationships because, you know, it's not natural for human beings to be moulded into killing machines, is it? Or be part, part of a, if not personally moulded into a killing machine, to be part of an organisation whose major objective is to kill other people. It's not a natural thing. So there is a huge casualty rate. And what do we do? We turn their backs on we turn our backs on them. And there's nothing worse than when I hear that it was the anti conscriptionists during the Vietnam War, you know, who humiliated the the people who returned, the soldiers, the conscripts and the volunteers who returned from Vietnam. You know who humiliated them? It was the government of the day. It was the government that sent them there for purely you know, reactionary political ends. It was the government that ignored them when they came back. It was the government which refused, and these are conservative government, which refused to recognise their war wounds. And we see the same today amongst veterans who return from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, who will lead the marches today on Anzac Day. We see how we treat them, not we, but the government of the day. How it spends millions of dollars, over $300 million to glorify World War I, to mark the 100th anniversary of World War I and the Anzac Gallipoli campaign, but can't seem to get it right when it comes to the health and families of returned servicemen and women in this country who have some of the highest rates 
of disadvantage that you will ever see. Quite extraordinary situation, isn't it? Quite extraordinary. It's a little bit like the used car salesman who kind of lures you into the uh, used car yard, takes your cash and then gives you a lemon. It seems to be the same with the Australian Armed Forces, doesn't it? Have all these pretty campaigning pictures about how you can get a job and a career and you know be worthwhile and protect the country and blah, 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 and then used as disposable cannon fodder by the government of the day for their short-term myopic political ends. So lest we forget, lest we forget the human misery that we cause, lest we forget all those people who use Anzac Day, the 25th of April, both in government and conservative and reactionary circles, to promote their myopic world view. Lest we forget all those returned servicemen and women who have paid not just the ultimate price, but continue to pay a price. Lest we forget the impact that has on their families and friends. Let's think about it. Anzac Day is a day to remember. It's a day to commemorate. It's a day to review. It's a day to ensure that this does not, these things do not continue to happen. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting today's program. You can access the program via podcast. You can go to the podcast, 3cr.org.au, 3cr.org.au. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 3052. You can access, lest we forget, the uh, little booklet I wrote 10 years ago and have updated recently uh, about the history behind World War I, the anti-conscription movement and its importance in the history of this country by going to anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. Feel free to download it, no copyright. You can go to my personal Facebook page, Toscano for the Public, Toscano for the Public. Now, a few things, too, I'd like just you to remember. Uh, the 9th of May will be the next Defend and Extend Public Housing Rally on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. That's the 9th of May, midday, the 9th of May. That's Wednesday. Now, you may have noticed the increasing role, the Institute of Private Affairs, they call themselves public, but they're not. It's a private company, basically. The Institute of Private Affairs is having on the Liberal Party where it's trying to take over every branch in the Liberal Party and currently there's a huge debate within the Liberal Party. Now, the wets have been destroyed. It's not the dry and the wets. It's the conservatives and the ultra-conservatives, the economic rationalists and the irrationalists. And the... Institute of Private Affairs has conducted a 20-year campaign where it now holds over 25% of the seats, the parliamentary seats in the federal party and about 20% in the Victorian state parliament and other state parliaments, members of the, the Institute of Public Affairs, which have entered the Liberal Party and have manipulated the Liberal Party to suit them. So the Wednesday Action Group, the Anarchist Institute, will be holding holding a month, month-long campaign 
from Wednesday the 23rd of May to Wednesday the 13th of June and we will be gathering outside the Institute of Private Affairs offices at 410 Collins Street in Melbourne at 11.30am for one hour on the 23rd of May, 30th of May, the 6th of June and the 13th of June. So don't forget and join us on those days. Don't forget Marbo Day, which has been held this year on Sunday the 30th, sorry, Sunday the 3rd of June. Now, Reconciliation Week is bookended by Sorry Day, which is the 26th of May, Saturday the 26th of May, and Marbo Day, which is Sunday the 3rd of June. And obviously we'll be involved in events, but once the events we are organising on behalf of the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation is the Marbo Day events, put it in your calendar, uh, a... Um, Gathering, Federation Square, corner of Flinders and Swanson Street at midday from 12 till 1 on Sunday the 3rd of June and then from 2pm to 5pm at the Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church at 110 Gray Street. We will be holding an afternoon of music and uh, celebration to which you are all invited, all invited, come along get involved, learn more about the Alan Jose uh, Memorial Foundation and more importantly celebrate uh, Marbo Day on the 3rd of June, a very important day as far as uh, Indigenous rights are concerned in this country. Now, at a more traditional angle, we celebrate days also. The Anarchist Meter Institute this year, as in previous years, will be celebrating May Day with a May Day march. Now, Some states across the country have a public holiday on May Day the 1st of May, but for some reason there's never been enough political push in Australia to celebrate May Day on the 1st of... Sorry, in Victoria to celebrate May Day on the 1st of May. And May Day is normally celebrated on the first Sunday after the 1st of May, but we don't hold to that. The 1st of May as far as Melbourne anarchists and Victorian anarchists and Australian anarchists is concerned, is a sacred day. Because on the 1st of May, 1886, the Melbourne Anarchist Club was formed, the first anarchist organisation in this country. And it was formed as a result of the call in 1884 by the combined Canadian and United States trade unions to mark the 1st of May around the world as a day of international protest for the eight-hour day. And heeding that call, a number of Melbourne anarchists came together on the 1st of May, 1886, 132 years ago, and formed the Melbourne Anarchist Club. So we celebrate the 1st of May. We don't wait till Sunday. Now, obviously, some people involved in the 1st of May, March, will also be involved in the uh, celebrations on the, uh, I think it's the Sunday, the 6th of May, outside Trades Hall, but I won't be. My day, I'm, I'm a stickler for celebrating days on the days they occur. Would you celebrate your birthday two weeks after it occurs or on the Sunday after it occurs? I'm sure you wouldn't. Even if you cried a few tears for your lost youth, you wouldn't celebrate it. So... Tuesday, the 1st of May, why don't you join us on a May Day march? Now, Chummy Fleming, 
a Melbourne anarchist, was instrumental in organising May Day marches in this in 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 Victoria, especially in Melbourne. He organised the first May Day march in Melbourne in eighteen ninety two. His ashes were scattered during the May Day march in nineteen fifty five. And Shami Fleming is the honour of being the only anarchist who actually has a little laneway or a street named after him. And it's in Carlton, off Ligon Street, off Argyle Street. So this May Day, we'll be gathering, assembling at 11am at Chummy Place in Carlton, which is named after Melbourne anarchist Chummy Fleming. Melway's reference, 2BF9. 2BF9. Look it up. Chummy. C-H-U-M-M-I-E. Place. We're starting there at 11am. And then we'll be walking to the eight-hour monument at the corner of Russell and Victoria Street in Melbourne, which we hope to arrive by about 11.30am because obviously the eight-hour day struggle was an important component of May Day celebration. So we, and from there, we'll be going to Her Majesty's Theatre at 212 Exhibition Street, Melbourne. We hope to be there about midday. Why Her Majesty's Theatre? Because the Melbourne Anarchist Club rented a room upstairs in Her Majesty's Theatre to hold their public meetings in, to hold their own meetings in. And then after that, at around 12.30, we'll be having a May Day lunch, which you'll be paying for, obviously, at the Paramount Food Hall, which is about 10 metres from the... Her Majesty's Fitness. That's a great few hours. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to the website, anarchismedia.org, pull down the May Day March uh, poster, send it to your friends, look at the leaflet, which we distribute on the day, which gives a history of May Day and why it's so important to Australian anarchists. We celebrate the 132nd anniversary of the Australian anarchist movement. So 11 a.m., Join us Tuesday the 1st of May, Chummy Place, Carlton, Melbourne. Melway's reference to BF9. 11.30am we march from there to the 8-hour monument at the corner of Russell Street and Victoria Street, Melbourne. And then we march to Her Majesty's Theatre at 219 Exhibition Street, Melbourne and lunch across the road. Great day. You're all invited. Bring flags. There will be posters and... uh, Leaflets to hand out, but bring flags. Bring your anarchist flags for the day. It is our day as far as uh, the Australian anarchist movement is concerned. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on this special uh, Anzac Day edition of the program. As I said before, if you want to get the booklet, uh, again, no copyright, download it from anarchistmedia.org or go to my Facebook page, Toscane for the Public and uh, follow the prompts. If you want to join public interest before corporate interest and memberships are still rolling in, go to pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Download the application form. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Scarner. I've been hosting this program. Now, May Day will occur before the next uh, Anarchist World this week, so hopefully we'll see you on Tuesday the 1st of May, 11am, Chummy Place, Carlton, Melbourne, off Ligon Street, the only street in Australia named after a prominent 
Australian anarchists. Join us for the uh, two to three hour celebrations which we'll be holding on that day. And uh, don't forget to listen to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station. If you want to leave a message, 0439 395 489 0439 395 489. And yes, we still need $1 stamps. We'll be doing a mass mail-out soon for the uh, public interest before corporate interest. We need about 700 stamps, so send them across to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. The program is podcast. Go to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Dot org dot au. Next week, scintillating analysis of boring, dreary things that are happening in the world. Thank you once again for listening to Joseph Toscano joining the dots on the anarchist world this week. <laughs>